Listener Production. My mouth waters at the thought of dinner, including fresh-cooked vegetables and herbs picked straight from the garden. But they're even better when they're cooked by one of the best chefs in the world. I remember it as a kid when I was working for Marco Pierre White in London and when we would win a star, the whole team would just be elated. Hi, I'm Charlie Albone, and in partnership with Still on this episode of That's How We Grow, I'm catching up with none other than renowned chef Curtis Stone. Known for cooking amazing meals, Curtis understands the importance of using the best produce. There's probably half a dozen ingredients that just work really well in each season and you can sort of get the jump on it so you've always got something coming out of the garden. And of course every home gardener knows growing your own produce at home is best. Curtis, thank you so much for joining us today, really appreciate it. We know you as obviously a world-renowned chef, but where did it all start? Well, firstly, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I've always just loved to eat. I've, I've always been a little bit greedy and I've always wanted more than my fair share and mm. I've always been fascinated with the way food tastes. So I guess it sort of started with, you know, me hanging around my mum and my granny as they were in the kitchen and watching what they were doing and, mm. yeah, <laughs> through greed. <laughs> through greed you became a chef. It, it's true. You know, so I was always interested in food and then I went to an all-boys school yep. and Shannon Bennett, who was the chef at Vieux de Monde, he, he was one of my best mates and, and we came up with a bit of a plan to because they did home economics out of the girls' school. Mm. So if you're enrolled in that uh, and all of our mates were doing learning how to do woodworking and all that as the yes. elective, but Shannon and I decided to go and try and meet some girls. So we went to do home economics. It really had not much to do with the cooking, but um, we both turned out to be good chefs. So well, I actually did home economics as well for the exact same reason, but I'm, I'm not a very good chef. <laughs> <laughs> you might have been better with the girls. Shannon and I weren't very good with the girls, but anyway. So you studied home economics and then what one thing led to another? It did. I, you know, I guess you get to that point in your being a student and you think to yourself, all right, well, I've got to make a decision, but you're not really quite ready to make that decision. Mm. But I always did want to cook, but I got decent grades. So my dad tried to convince me quite aggressively to, to go and be a lawyer because I got the grades to be a lawyer and I, I sort of ummed and ahed. And, and then one night I said, mate, I just don't, I don't fancy it. You know, I just, I, yeah. I'd much rather cook. Uh, and that was the, that was the moment that I was like, no, I'm going to go and do an apprenticeship. And that's, that's ultimately what I did. Yeah. Wow. And so you went to the US as well. I mean, that's where you've really blown up. Yeah. How, how did that come about? Well, I moved to England first. I worked in London for nearly 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and from there, I got asked to do a TV show. And I did a couple. And then I got asked to do one in America. So I sort of went to America just for a few months to do this TV show. And they extended it and extended it and extended it. And we, we ended up doing 140 episodes of this one show. Yeah, wow. Um, so it sort of turned into a bit of a, a behemoth. And, and I was there for the best part of a year doing that show and then you know you sort of just when that show ended there was talk of another show and at that point I'd made some friends and you know I sort of thought I'll stick around and see what happens for a yeah. little bit longer and sure enough another show came and uh, then I met my wife um, my girlfriend at the time and then uh, and then I sort of got a bit more serious about opening a restaurant and all of a sudden your life's just there you You're know then so, an adult. yeah well, it, wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't really intentional but um, yeah I'm still there and you've cooked for Conan O'Brien as well. Does I mean, that's pretty crazy. Does your mind ever feel like it's exploding, like some of the stuff you've done? I guess so. I, I guess it all sort of just happens piece by piece. You know, there's a couple of moments in your career you look back and you're like, oh, I remember when I got that phone call and it was a pretty big deal, you know. Mm. Um, and I suppose 
it sort of just does catch up with you a little bit, you know, and at some point you turn around and you're like, God, what am I doing here? How do I make it into this room? So yeah, it's been a pretty extraordinary ride and I'm, I'm grateful for it all, you know, like yeah. I, I've enjoyed it along the way and uh, I still get to do what I love, you know, and I, I genuinely still love it. I love going into the restaurant. I like being in the kitchen uh, until late at night and if I'm in a studio developing recipes for a cookbook or for something else I'm working on, then I love that as well, you mm. know, and so it's nice to sort of have a good variety of things that you enjoy. Do you enjoy cooking at home? To be honest, I probably enjoy cooking in my restaurant more. Okay. Because I feel like you have all your equipment and you have everything that you, you need. But I still love, of course, you like cooking for your family more than anyone else because it's a very personal thing to cook for someone and you sort of think about what that person or those people like or dislike or what kind of atmosphere you want to set mm-hmm. through your food and develop the menu that way. So yeah, it's, it's cool. So what's your kitchen like at home? My wife will tell you it's her kitchen because she's in it more than I am. And that's true. But when I'm there, I, I love being in there and I, you know, it's, it's a big kitchen. It's got a nice big island um, mm-hmm. in the middle. The last house I lived in, the kitchen was sort of at the end of the house and Everyone would be down the other end of the house, not always be on my own. So when we found this new house, I, I really wanted the kitchen to sort of be at the center of it. And it is. And my wife's regularly sitting at the kitchen counter while I cook. And, you know, the kids are in and out of that room a lot. So it's it's nice to have a big central kitchen. Sort of opens up onto the backyard and I've got yes. a, my veggie garden out there and my barbecue area out there. So mm-hmm. it's sort of it's all connected, which is nice. That was my next question. What's your garden like? It's pretty good. Yeah, it's, uh, I love gardening. I like being outside. And I like the exploration of an ingredient, you know, mm. and I think that when you when you stop and really dive deep on an ingredient, you can you can learn a lot about it and it teaches you to be a good cook and, and teaches you how you should treat it. And, you know, I think quite often we think about an ingredient like it's just one thing, like a pea, but you can eat lots of parts of that ingredient. There's the pea and there's the pea creates a flour that's really good and there's a shoot that's really tasty and quite often there's there's different components of an ingredient that you can wrap your head around. And I think when you start to grow it, you appreciate it more because you mm. realize how difficult it, it can be and how time-consuming it can be to grow something. So you don't want to just take the pea, you want to take everything. That's right. It. Yeah. And you're in total control over it. You know, you might want a really young pea that has a lot more sweetness to it where you can serve it raw mm. as opposed to a bigger pea that's a bit more fibrous, you know, so there's a bit more... Um, control, I guess, that you've got over the ingredient, which Mm. is pretty fun. What's your favorite thing to grow? You know, as an Aussie living in LA, I like growing things that people haven't seen before. Like Vegemite. (laughs) (laughs) I've never mastered that plant. (laughs) I grow a lot of passion fruit. Yep. And it's funny because, you know, passion fruit is really expensive. I'm a tight ass as well. So it's nice when you find an ingredient that's a couple of bucks in the store and you're like, I grow all this for free. And I like giving that to my friends and letting them sort of try it and experience it because it's an uncommon... I grow finger lime, which, you know, you, you don't really find in America. No, that's an Australian native. It is, yeah. yeah. I've got some salt bush in the backyard. Do you? Yeah, a few things that uh, found their way into my backyard that aren't commonly found. Do you use those in your cooking? I do. I mean, salt bush is such a beautiful ingredient because mm. you can dry it, you can fry it. Uh, when it's crisp, it's delicious. It's wonderful with lamb. So many great ways to serve it just as an accompaniment. Finger lime, I th- it's just a 
gorgeous ingredient. You know, it's got it this looks cool too. Really beautiful texture. Yeah. It looks it's a spiky bush. You know, if you yeah. if you garden with it, you you're constantly getting pricked by the thorns on the uh, on the, on the finger limes. But the flavour is really great, like lots of citrus. But the texture is just so unique. Yes. So with raw fish or oysters or anything that you sort of want to have that little bit of pop. The first chef I worked for, um, German fellow at the Savoy Park Plaza, Chef Bart, he always said to me, when you cook fish or anything out of the ocean, you want to crunch. You want to reinforce the freshness through the crunch. Okay. And I always remembered it because it's very true, like whether it's a piece of raw celeriac or celery or whatever, and you bite on it and you're kind of like, oh, that's fresh and delicious. And I think that's what finger lime does. So I quite often serve it with raw fish, but I'll also serve it, I, I did it in a Berblanc with a duck ravioli and it sort mm-hmm. of brought this beautiful brightness to the uh, to the dish that um, that people really appreciated and, and yeah. they haven't seen it before, so it makes me sound really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so when you moved to LA, was there anything that really blew your mind ingredients-wise that you found? Do you know, tomatillos are something that are grown and used so much over there in, in that part of... Um, and I really didn't have any experience with them. Mm. And when you first see them, you're like, what is it, a green tomato, you know? Yeah. But it's it's something that's used a lot in the Mexican cuisine. We just opened a restaurant in Mexico, actually, on the Caribbean seaside, Playa del Carmen, and they've got gorgeous ingredients down there, you know, that it's very tropical. Yes. Um, so lots of different fruits that I hadn't really come across. But tomatillas was one of those ones that I was like, I'm going to play with this, you know, and it's got a real acidity and brightness to it. And You have to do anything in particular to it? You can roast them. You can fire roast them and give a little smokiness. They have acidity, which is really beautiful. Mm-hmm. You know, in the, in the South, in America, they fry green tomatoes too. And it sort of opened my mind a little bit to, oh, we only think of tomatoes being edible when they're ripe, but no, they're not. You know, you can eat them green. And we started playing a little bit with strawberries in that way as well and and pickling green strawberries. And, and they're really lovely because yeah. they have a really different acidity level. And I think um, not only new ingredients, but also how you treat them. Is, that's, that was a pretty cool thing when I first got there. So did you develop the whole garden in your new house or was it already partly there? I did. No, I developed it all. We planted a bunch of trees um, and I I planted the, the veggie garden um, there and I change it, you know, regularly. And yes. it's, it's a raised bed, so it's uh, it's a nice easy one to, to work. We're quite lucky in, in Sydney, actually all across Australia and in LA, that the climate is quite um, temperate. Mm. It's quite... So it, you can kind of grow a lot year round. Right. Do, you, do you try and grow as much stuff year round or are you, you quite a seasonal gardener? Oh, so you haven't made your way down to Melbourne yet. <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, I grew up in Melbourne and uh, the weather... It's still classed as temperate, believe it, it or really? not. Yeah. My God, not Even where my dad is in end. It's cold. Look, I think there's probably a few heroes from each season that you can sort of wrap your head around that just do really well. You know, when I think of springtime, which we're sort of um, coming into now, it's rhubarb and it's peas and asparagus. If you can, you know, that's it. Leafy greens are are good to grow. And as you sort of roll into summer, you can plant tomatoes and zucchinis and summer squash. And So I sort of feel like there's probably half a dozen ingredients that just work really well in each season and you can sort of get the jump on it. So you've always got something coming out of the garden. Yeah. I'm a mad fan for brassicas like the yeah. broccolis, broccolis and, and, and yeah. cabbage, uh, cauliflowers and stuff like that. And they grow those in the cold. You, you sure can. They grow well in the cold. Yeah. You know, it's funny. We've got – I never – get my broccoli out of the garden because I don't know what eats it, but something just comes and steals it right before it's ready Does to it? pick. Yeah. You put a net over it. 
Right. Yeah. I should. That's or a good you point. can um, make up a spray of onion, garlic, and chili. Just right. Steep that in water and spray it over the top. And it just makes it inedible to any pests. And then when you come in, you can wash it off. And That's cool. Yeah. So you just put that in the blender? Yeah, just put it in the blender and just. Just soak it for like 24 hours, and then you can put it in a spray bottle and spray it on. Oh, I'm going to try that. Yeah. And how do, how do you find gardening? Do you enjoy the process of gardening, or do you just enjoy the what you get from it? No, I love it. I love it. My mum was a really good gardener, so I'd watch her, but I wasn't interested in it as a kid. Mm. But then as I had younger kids, I'd teach them a little bit about gardening, and then they're, you know, pretty stoked by being able to harvest something and pull the carrots out or, or whatever it is, you yeah. know, that you, you've you got sort of working. And um, I find that really rewarding. And it's also just a very slow time for me. You know, it's when I'm in the dirt and I'm just thinking about nothing apart from, but then I start dreaming about food and dishes that yeah. I want to do and whatever. So I don't get a lot of alone time. So that's, that's sort of a nice... It's a different pace, isn't it? I think I watched you on MasterChef doing a challenge yeah. where the contestants had to keep up with you. And I just couldn't believe the pace you were going at. It was absolutely <laughs> insane. And these contestants was like pouring with sweat trying to keep up with you. That's, I would imagine, what um, a commercial kitchen is like full time. And then gardening, on the other hand, is just like almost going in reverse. Right. Do you enjoy that sort of juxtaposition between the two? I really do. I really do. I, I met a guy in LA. He's a, a super talented gardener. Jimmy Williams, his name is. Mm-hmm. And he's sort of, he's built this little nursery that's kind of, in the middle of Silver Lake, it's kind of, it's in the middle of the city, but it's, it's this beautiful, you know, crazy, I think he might have 150 different varieties of heirloom tomatoes and, yeah, wow. you know, he's, he's just got the green thumb of all green thumbs and yeah. he knows it. So, and I've got him on speed dial. So I'm constantly sending him photos of, you know, a leaf. What's wrong with this? What am I doing? Yeah, you're putting too much water into it or what, you know, and, and I love that. And I love that sort of camaraderie that you get too, when you meet other gardeners and you yeah. share uh, ideas and, and learn, learn from them. So yeah. I'm I'm not an internet gardener. I know a lot of people sort of spend time googling things, and I'm I'm I don't know why. I've just I can't be bothered doing that. I'd rather figure it out for myself. I think you got to figure it out yourself. It's the best way to do it. I mean, I always say I've killed a lot of plants in my time, but they make fantastic compost, right? Yeah, uh, and you yeah. learn so much from killing a plant. As to just if you planted something and it was successful, you wouldn't know why. You need to. Give it some damage, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it's very true. You know, we bought a farm about, uh, oh, it's only 40 minutes from where we live in LA and it's yep. it's um, it's got a little vineyard on it. Mm-hmm. So the first year we, we got it, there's maybe 12 acres under vine and we, you know, I thought we, we, we didn't buy it for the vineyard, but the vineyard was there and I thought it'd be a bit of fun, you know, and the first year that she said it had been terribly neglected and I think we got 13 tonnes of fruit off it that year and mm-hmm. I thought it was pretty easy growing grapes. You know? <laughs> and then the next year we had a, um, they call them yellow jackets, but you know those little European wasps. Yeah, Mate, we got swarmed by these bloody wasps and, and then the year after that, so we lost a, a big chunk of the, the harvest and then the next year uh, we got a deer well, a family of deer in the property, and the deer ate most of it. So it's you know I'm at war with these animals, who are, and, then, and I'm losing the war badly. But you were lucky uh, the first year. That's right. And then we had a white fly problem, and you're kind of like, oh god, there's so much to wrap your head around. Yeah, with. there really is. Yeah, uh, I had this interesting chat with these guys who have a macadamia farm uh, up near Byron, and they reinstated the natural bushland and, and rainforest around it. And they found the more they did that, the higher the yield they got because of 
native owls and things like that keeping on top of the pests. Wow. It was really incredible, yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, really okay. amazing. So maybe you need a, a native rainforest around, <laughs> native, around your farm. There's not much rain in LA, that's the problem. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it is a dry climate. Yeah. You, you mentioned you had a gardener on speed dial to help you out with any of your issues. Yeah. Uh, what, what's he told you about tomatoes? Well, look, I think the way you, you um, take care of the tomatoes is really interesting, right? Like you've got to stake them mm-hmm. well and you've got to hold them up. Yeah, I, I didn't used to do that. I used to just sort of leave them to their own yep. accord. But, you know, I think if you want a better yield, you know, and some varietals grow easier than others, but I'm not a brilliant tomato grower either. It's They're actually thing. quite tricky to grow. They are. Yeah. They're not easy. Yeah. yeah. And we've Do got lots of sun over there, so I've sort of got the right climate for it. Yes. Yeah, they're, they're, they're tough. Does he tell you to take the side shoots off so it's just one central leader? Yeah. One central leader. That's exactly what yeah, he says. Get yeah. as much sun on them as possible. Yeah. So it sounds like you've got a bit of space in your, in your home garden if you've got an orchard and, and raised veggie patch and stuff like that. If someone's working with a small space, yep. what, are, what do you think are the best things for them to grow that they can use in the kitchen? Well, look, I think depending on what you've got, most of us have a fence or a, or a wall that you can kind of creep something onto, mm-hmm. you know, and I think vines are really interesting. I actually have grapes growing at home and they will just take off, you know, I mean, they, and they, they go and you get a lot of fruit off, off grapes, like passion fruit too, you know, yeah. that's, that's a good sort of wall covering. And then I think, you know, you've got to sort of think about, well, what do you get a lot of bang for your buck out of the kitchen? You know, growing beans is a challenging one, right? Cause mm-hmm. you, you need a lot of space for the amount of beans you get from it. But, um, herbs of course is, is a good one because you don't use a lot in the kitchen. So if you've got limited space, I think a little herb garden is always a, a good way to start. Yeah, it is a good, good spot. I always like, uh, lettuce and leafy greens as well. Right. Cause I always, tend to buy it from the supermarket and then it just sits in the bottom of the fridge and goes mushy after I've used it. Whereas if you've got fresh, you can just take what you need and it keeps coming back. Absolutely. Kale's one too, that even if you're terrible in the garden and you neglect something, it's like kale just grows like a weed. <laughs> yeah, it really does. My dad says, yeah, but no one wants to eat it. But you can cook really nicely with kale. You've yep. just got to, you know, Google some good recipes. You mentioned that your boys enjoyed gardening. Yeah. Do they enjoy cooking as well? They do, one more than the other. I've got one, my oldest boy, um, he's really into food and he'll eat anything. He's very experimental. Yeah. But my younger one, he's a total redneck. Unless it's <laughs> fried or white, he just doesn't want anything to do with it. You yeah. know, it's like, I'm not eating it, Dad. And he just pushes it away from him. And, you know, it's, it, as a chef, it's so bloody challenging because you're like, mate, it's delicious and yeah. I know you like it. Just try it. He's like, I'm not. I won't try it. I'm no. not going to try it. I don't want it. Just make it into the shape of a chicken oh, nugget. It's like this hunger strike he goes on. I'm like, buddy. But anyway, <laughs> um, I'll get him sooner or later. He's, he's starting to come around very slowly. Yeah. It's not easy. And what's your favorite style of cooking? Because I'm mad for the barbecue. I'll barbecue anything. You're talking to the right man. Yeah. I, I love the barbie. I think it's a real Aussie way of life, the Australian barbecue. And I still remember as a young kid walking past the neighbor's house and smelling that they're having a barbecue and desperately wanting to walk into their place and and, uh, and sit down and have dinner with them. And there's something about that togetherness that I'll, I've just done a line of barbecue tools that okay. you, can, you can pick up at Coles actually yeah. uh, for that very reason because I'm like, you know, if you – I think through simple tools you can actually transform – the barbecue into something that everyone can be successful at. Mm-hmm. I've done a little grill basket so, you know, the veggies that you cook don't fall through the grill grates and they're yes. like simple little things. But I do think 
barbecuing's a beautiful way to to cook lots of things. And I mean, look, I have a restaurant called Gwen and we cook literally over live fire every single night. So there's, yeah, yeah lots of different ways to, to make food beautiful on a barbecue. Yeah. Are you a purist? Are you like, if I cook something on a gas barbecue, will you, will you <laughs> shun me? Or? <laughs> Look, I much prefer the flavor of, of course. wood burning or, or a charcoal burning barbie than, than a gas one. But look, you know, it depends. You can still get delicious char from, from a gas barbecue, yeah. so you can still Just get some the same of the though, is it? Not quite. When it comes to growing vegetables, I mean, it's obviously so seasonal. How do you deal with that when you're trying to do a menu for a restaurant? Look, I think it's it's actually gives you all of the creative tools that you need, and that's what I love about it. When we first opened Maud, my restaurant in L.A., what we did was we took one ingredient and we said, we'll just cook with that. We'll do a 10-course menu, and that one ingredient will be threaded through each course. Mm-hmm. But, of course, you run the risk of boring people to death and serving them artichokes 10 ways, and they walk out of there never wanting to see an artichoke again. So you've got to be creative with how you do it. We used to call it the components of the ingredients. So we'd say, what can we do with it? Before we start thinking about dishes, what can we do with the artichoke? And we'd figure out by the end of that development that we could turn it into a snow and we could make a sauce and you could make a puree and you could thinly slice it and cure it and serve it raw. And, you know, so you might end up with 10 or 15 different things that you can do with the artichoke. And then you'd be like, all right, let's choose nine of them and make nine dishes and we'll we'll weave it through. So I think the successful part of that restaurant was people would walk out of there and go, Holy cow, I had no idea that you could do all of that with you that one ingredient. You could snow an artichoke. That's right. How do you snow an artichoke? <laughs> well, you, it's sort of, you know, turning it into a granita. So right. you, you'd need to turn it into a puree and then you'd probably want to sweeten it somehow. And then you freeze it and then you just scrape it with a fork and it looks and like snow, snow. And it's artichoke snow. There you go. <laughs> Something new every single day. You've, you've got some fantastic uh, accolades Two Michelin stars? Yeah, one in each restaurant. One yeah, at Glen and one at Maud. How do you get how do you how do you get those? I mean, it must is there a process like a judging panel or do they just go, hey, well, I popped in and I think you deserve one of these? Or they do anonymous inspections. So okay. you have no idea when they come. And it's rather daunting because, you know, like a big part of that guide is consistency and your food has to be consistently great, you yeah. know, otherwise you don't win the awards. So yeah. Anyone that works in restaurants would know that we all have bad nights, you know, like sometimes all the guests arrive at once or the the first half a dozen tables arrive late and the next half a dozen tables arrive early and suddenly everybody's sitting there looking around for a waiter like, why aren't you taking my order? Uh You know, you can't take everyone's order in in the same moment and if you do, then the kitchen can't put out all those dishes at once and you can be put under a lot of pressure. A couple of your line cooks might, get sick and not come to work that day. And, you know, there's stuff yeah. that happens. Your fish might not show up there. Anyway, I could we could fill the whole time <laughs> me talking about all the things that can go wrong in restaurants. But, you know, when when that kind of stuff happens, you've got to think on your feet. You've got to sort of stay calm and be like, we've still got to be consistent. You know, we've got to do tonight what we did last night and the mm-hmm. night before that. But you don't want it to make you boring either. You know, you don't want to say, well, we're just, our aim is consistency. No, your aim is excellence, but excellence has to be consistent. Yes. And that's sort of where it gets hard, you know. Yeah. So it must be an incredible feeling to to get those awards. It is. It sure is. And it's a total team effort. And I think that celebration with your team is really special. You know, I remember it as a kid when I was working for Marco Pierre White in London and 
when we would win a star, the whole team would just be elated, you know. We won many stars. I worked with him in a three-star. I worked with him in a one-star. And you sort of, um, w- when that happens, you just feel on top of the world. And I'll, I'll never forget that feeling. So I always make a real point of sharing it with every single staff member that works with us, you know, whether you wash the dishes or polish the glasses or the head chef in the restaurant, you know, you everyone's as important as each other and it's it's a pretty cool feeling. Yeah, it would be. Is there anything that you wish you could grow that you, you can't grow? I'm never good at growing roots. I don't know why. And I don't know if it's an LA thing. And I've got a buddy who, well, he's a he's an incredible farmer, um, Alex Weiser, and he has a farm up in Tehachapi, which is sort of, they get frosts and we don't get frosts, of course, in, yeah. in LA. So that's what I blame it on. But he promises me that you can still grow it where I am. And I've followed all of his instructions, but for some reason, I can just never grow good carrots or parsnips. What about you? Is there, This is a tougher question because you probably can grow everything, but is there anything no. that you have trouble with? Uh, Japanese peonies, I would love to grow, just yeah. don't have the climate for them. I have got tattoos of them because, you know, I've actually, I have one growing. I haven't been able to make it flower yet because right. I think it's just too humid in, in Sydney. But right. I, I mean, I love vegetable gardening, but I also love flowers as well. Yeah. Just, I think the two go so well together. I'm going to have to hit you up because my wife's always saying, she's like, I want a cut flower garden. You know, I want you to be able to go out and cut me flowers. Yeah. <laughs> I only want to grow it if I can eat it. But um, yeah, no. I, but you could, uh, so there's this amazing uh, company called Wildflower Australia and they do seed mixes that you just cast in any spare bit of dirt you've got and all these amazing flowers pop up and you really? can harvest them, take them inside. And it's a great way to fill in gaps and it will bring in lots of things to pollinate all your veggies as well. So. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I've got some seeds back to, to, to LA. Yeah. I'll have to post them. I don't want to get in trouble at <laughs> yeah. the airport. I've got some hydrangea. I keep killing the hydrangea. I think maybe it's too, too Not enough hot. water. Is that what too it is? Hot, yeah. Yeah, if you're in LA, you need a lot. You need to improve the soil with a lot of compost right. and keep the moisture up to them, and give them sun maybe up till midday, and then a bit of shade in the afternoon. In the afternoon, so they will survive in the heat. They will survive in the heat. I mean, they'll really droop in in the heat, but they'll suck water up. If you can give them water, then they okay. should bounce back. Yeah, all right. I'm going to try it. I'm going to have another go. So, Curtis, uh, obviously, the podcast is is brought to us by Still, and I've heard a little rumor that uh, you're a bit of a fan. You know, it's funny. When I bought this farm, I spoke to my dad, who lives on a bit of land up in, in Woodend, and he said, you're going to need a uh, a chainsaw, mate. And mm-hmm. I said, yeah, yeah, I was, I was going to get one. And he's like, don't get some wimpy chainsaw. I don't, listen, you go, <laughs> it doesn't matter what they try and say, you buy a still. They're the only, that's the best chain. He said, and you need yeah. a farm boss. And I was like, all right, all right. Yeah. And then I happened to be working in Atlanta at the time. There was a big sign up, the Atlanta chainsaw store. So I went in there and I walked in and I met this guy and I was like, uh, I want a farm boss, mate. And I want a still. And he goes, he goes, ah, you know, your chainsaws. And I was like, I actually never really used one. I said, my dad just told me that was one I had to buy. So yeah, yeah. Oh, your dad's got good taste. I've still got my very first farm boss. Still Have you works. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Still works. Awesome. Well, it's been amazing that you've come in. Thank you so much. Do you mind hanging around? We've got a few questions from our listeners. To, of course. To yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Great. Okay, so it's time for some community questions. First question is from Beck in Horsham. She says, hi, Charlie. I'm designing my first home and want to incorporate the garden into the patio to make it feel more like open living. Any tips on how to do this? Australian landscape design and, say, European design is, is very different. 
In Australia, they try and keep everything as close to the house as possible, whereas in Europe, it's like, let's have a destination in the garden, let's have a mm. patio that you can walk to and you know, go down and, and explore and find this place. Is it the same in, in LA? How do, they, how do they treat it? It's, it probably depends a little bit on the size that you've got. Yeah. It's probably a bit more like Australia, but I love that European attitude of like yeah. having the garden, something to go and discover different areas and little areas to go sit in and, you know, having the barbecue area, not right next to the house, it's somewhere that you've got to actually walk out to. So yeah, I, I kind of like it being away. Yeah. It makes it more exciting to go and find it. And I think, I guess aspect is a big one. You know, if it's in full sun all day, you're going to want some shade. Whereas if it's a shady spot, you want to keep it as open as possible. So again, it feels inviting. Yeah. Second question from Lewis in Torquay. Hey, Charlie, I've, I'm surrounded by some bush, so I get some small animals in my yard like possums and lorikeets. I love seeing them and it makes me feel more connected to nature. What can I do to influence more animals and explore my property? As soon as I see a possum, I freak out. I've got this amazing magnolia tree and didn't have one flower on it this year because the possums, they just come and eat the sugar out of the flowers and, and destroy them. But if you like them, you like them. If you want to introduce animals, I, I wouldn't be feeding them because then they can become quite reliant on it. I think water is the key. And grow some vegetables. They'll come straight for your veggies. <laughs> yeah, especially <laughs> if you really like the vegetables you're growing, then they'll definitely eat those ones. Uh, right, a question from Sandra in Brunswick. I had some beautiful vegetables growing only for them to be eaten by pests. Nothing more frustrating than growing them and not being able to enjoy the fruits of my labor. I try to keep an organic garden wherever possible. What tips do you have to protect my produce? Again, the spray works really well. The, the garlic, onion, and chili spray works really well. But I think when it comes to vegetable gardening, the more you do it, the better. I, I always say, like, try and do a little bit every day rather than save it all up on the weekend and try and do it because you start to see the, the problems early on, don't you? You sure do, yeah. And I think you mentioned Annette earlier. I think that's the way I'll go at our farm. I think I'm just going to put up a big screen, a big A-frame, and screen yeah. it in. So then you sort of can just take care of it in that one fell swoop. Absolutely. All right, last question is from Shane from Perth. She said, hey, Charlie, I just moved into a new apartment. My plants get about half as much sunlight as they used to. They're not looking as good as they could. What could I do to supplement the loss of light? Uh, you could put up grow lights, but you might look like a drug dealer. <laughs> uh, um, or you could move into somewhere that has more sunlight. Very simple. <laughs> is, is, you, you've obviously got a lot of uh, sun in, in LA in your garden. Do you have any shady spots that you struggle with? Yeah, look, I think there's – but some things do well in it with a little bit of shade. So mm. I think it's really learning what you want to grow, what works in full sun, what, what works with a bit – you know, you mentioned the hydrangeas mm. earlier, and I didn't think of that, and mine are in full sun. So it's little things like that where you're like, oh, there's a shady spot that gets some afternoon um, shade that I'll, I'll try something that's a bit bit more reliant on that shade. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, as a rule of thumb, if you've got a really big leaf, like something like a hydrangea, it's going to like a bit more shade, whereas the smaller leaves, they've adapted to be smaller to take full sun. So maybe Shane from Perth can go through his plants and kind of edit the ones that will survive and, and maybe move on the other ones, give them away and make some more space for more plants. All right, I've got a personal question. Uh, do you say Palmer or Palmy? I say Palmer. Yeah. Is that, is that a Melbourne thing? I think so. And Palmy is a, a Sydney thing. I is think. that right? Yeah. I don't even know the difference. Yeah. I think so. We say potato cakes, and here you say potato scallops. Oh. So there's a few things going on. That is. There's, there's a few things going on. You say yeah. schooners, and we say pots. I mean, we could do this all afternoon. We, we, we really could. <laughs> well, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Lovely to speak to you, mate. On the next episode of That's How We Grow... I've taught people that have had no sense in gardening. 
and they've now built the most incredible billabong around the corner from my house. I'll be joined by award-winning landscape designer and friend of mine, Philip Johnson, to chat about garden design tips for everyone. Study nature. You don't need to be creative. I'm Charlie Albone. Thanks for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Listener.